trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins. This is a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, anything really. If you're interested in everything and anything, come along and listen and enjoy the show. Visit my website for the show notes, www.origins.info. Looking for a podcast that's more challenging, more stimulating intellectually? Well, here's the place. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to Origins, episode 31. This episode is entitled 10 Surprising Health Benefits from Sex. Other stories we'll be looking at in this episode include 10% of US kids are using cough medicine every week and our ancestors had a leg up to the trees. From the damninteresting.com, can you hear me now? and how the spice trade changed the world. A man uses a steak knife to do a self-tracheotomy, and we have some x-rays of the python who swallowed a pussy. And from the Popular Mechanics website, as the shuttle lifts off, NASA will man a destruct switch, just in case. Using abstract math to treat cancer, and the inventor of the wetsuit dies. And why doesn't evolution discourage suicide? And finally, why was the cyclone in Myanmar, or Burma, so deadly? The feature story for today comes from the www.webmd.com sex relationships website and it's entitled 10 Surprising Health Benefits of Sex and it's by Kathleen Downey. The health benefits of sex extend well beyond the bedroom. Turns out sex is good for you in many ways you may never have imagined. When you're in the mood, it's a sure bet that the last thing on your mind is boosting your immune system or maintaining a healthy weight. Yet good sex offers those health benefits and more. That's a surprise to many people, says Joy Davidson, PhD, a New York psychologist and sex therapist. Of course, sex is everywhere in the media, she says. But the idea that we are vital sexual creatures is still looked at in some cases with disgust or in other cases, a bit of embarrassment. So to really take a look at how our sexuality adds to our life and enhances our life and our health, both physical and psychological, is eye-opening for many people. Sex does a body good in a number of ways, according to Davidson and other experts. The benefits aren't just anecdotal or hearsay. 
Each of these ten health benefits of sex is backed by scientific scrutiny. Among the benefits of healthy loving in a relationship are the following. Number one. Sex relieves stress. A big health benefit of sex is lower blood pressure and overall stress reduction, according to researchers from Scotland who reported their findings in the journal Biological Psychology. They studied 24 women and 22 men who kept records of their sexual activity. Then the researchers subjected them to stressful situations, such as speaking in public and doing verbal arithmetic, and noted their blood pressure response to stress. Those who had intercourse had better responses to stress than those who engaged in other sexual behaviours or abstained. Another study published in the same journal found that frequent intercourse was associated with lower diastolic blood pressure in cohabitating participants, yet other research found a link between partner hugs and lower blood pressure in women. Number 2. Sex boosts immunity. Good sexual health may mean better physical health. Having sex once or twice a week has been linked with higher levels of an antibody called immunoglobulin A or IgA, which can protect you from getting colds and other infections. Scientists at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre took samples of saliva which contain IgA from 112 college students who reported the frequency of sex they had. Those in the frequent group once or twice a week, had higher levels of IgA than those in the other three groups who reported being abstinent, having sex less than once a week, or having it very often, three or four times weekly. Number three, sex burns calories. 30 minutes of sex burns 85 calories or more. It may not sound like much, but it adds up. 42 half-hour sessions will burn 3,570 calories, more than enough to lose a pound. Doubling up, you could drop that pound in 21-hour-long sessions. Sex is a great mode of exercise, said Patty Britton, PhD, a Los Angeles sexologist and president of the American Association of Sexuality Educators and Therapists. It takes work, from both a physical and psychological perspective, to do it well, she says. Number four. Sex improves cardiovascular health. While some older folks may worry that the efforts expended during sex could cause a stroke, that's not so, according to researchers from England. In a study published in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health, scientists found frequency of sex was not associated with stroke in the 914 men they followed for 20 years. And the heart health benefits of sex don't end there. The researchers also found that having sex twice or more a week reduced the risk of fatal heart attack by half for the men, compared with those who had sex less than once a month. Number 5. Sex boosts self-esteem. Boosting self-esteem was one of the 237 reasons people had sex collected by University of Texas researchers and published in the Archives of Sexual Behaviour. That finding makes sense to Gina Ogden, PhD, a sex therapist and marriage and family therapist in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Although she finds that those who already have self-esteem say they sometimes have sex to feel even better. One of the reasons people say they have sex is to feel good about themselves, she tells WebMD. Great sex begins with self-esteem and raises it. If the sex is loving, connected and you want it, it raises it. Number six, sex improves intimacy. Having sex and orgasms increases levels of the hormone oxytocin, the so-called love hormone, which helps us bond and build trust. 
Researchers from the University of Pittsburgh and the University of North Carolina evaluated 59 premenopausal women before and after warm contact with their husbands and partners ending with hugs. They found that the more contact, the higher the oxytocin levels. Oxytocin allows us to feel the urge to nurture and to bond, Britain says. Higher oxytocin has also been linked with a feeling of generosity. So if you're feeling suddenly more generous towards your partner than usual, credit the love hormone. Number seven, sex reduces pain. As the hormone oxytocin surges, endorphins increase and pain declines. So if your headache, arthritis pain or PMS symptoms seem to improve after sex, you can thank those higher oxytocin levels. In a study published in the Bulletin of Experimental Biology and Medicine, 48 volunteers who inhaled oxytocin vapour and then had their fingers pricked lowered their pain threshold by more than half. Sex reduces prostate cancer risk. Frequent ejaculations, especially in 20-something men, may reduce the risk of prostate cancer later in life. Australian researchers reported in the British Journal of Urology International. When they followed men diagnosed with prostate cancer and those without, they found no association of prostate cancer with the number of sexual partners as the men reached their 30s, 40s and 50s. But they found men who had five or more ejaculations weekly while in their 20s reduced their risk of getting prostate cancer later by a third. Another study reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that frequent ejaculations, 21 or more a month, were linked to lower prostate cancer risk in older men as well compared with less frequent ejaculations of four to seven monthly. Number 9. Sex strengthens pelvic floor muscles. For women, doing a few pelvic floor muscle exercises, known as kegels during sex, offers a couple of benefits. You will enjoy more pleasure, and you'll also strengthen the area and help to minimise the risk of incontinence later in life. Doing a basic kegel exercise tightens the muscles of your pelvic floor, as if you're trying to stop the flow of urine. Count to three then release. And if you're interested in the link to the Kegel exercises, there's a link in the show notes at www.origins.info. And finally, number 10. Sex helps you to sleep better. The oxytocin released during orgasm also promotes sleep, according to research. And getting enough sleep has been linked with a host of other good things, such as maintaining a healthy weight and blood pressure. Something to think about, especially if you've been wondering why your partner can be active one minute and snoring the next. Now for something a little less tantalising, from the LiveScience.com website, and it's written by Kevin McKeever. Apparently, 10% of US kids are using cough medicine every week. Approximately 1 in 10 US children uses one or more cough and cold medication during a given week, according to new research from Boston University. While cough and cold medicines for children are widely marketed in the United States, how frequently they are used has not been scientifically studied. This new finding from researchers at Boston University's Sloan Epidemiology Centre gives increased weight to recent revelations that cough and cold medication use can lead to serious adverse effects, including death. 
Given concerns about potential harmful effects and lack of evidence proving that these medications are effective in young children, the fact that one in ten US children is using one of these medications is striking, study author Dr Lewis Venaccio, an assistant professor of epidemiology and paediatrics at Boston University School of Medicine, said in a prepared statement. Yet the researchers also reported positive news in children's use of cough syrup and other drugs. The overall use of cough and cold medications declined from 12.3% in 1999-2000 to 8.4% in 2005-2006, they found. Researchers analysed data gathered between 1999 and 2006 through a national telephone survey and considered all oral medications approved by the US Food and Drug Administration to treat children's coughs and colds. In any given week, 10.1% of US children took at least one cough and cold medication, the researchers found. In terms of active ingredients, most were decongestants and antihistamines at 6.3% each, followed by anti-cough medicines at 4.1% and expectorants at 1.5%. Children aged 2 to 5 use the medications most often, but the rate was also high among those younger than 2. And if you're interested in this topic, there is a link to an article from the American Association of Pediatrics on cold remedies for children. And you can find that linked in this article in the show notes. Coming up now is an article from the bbc.co.uk website and this article's entitled Ancestors Had Leg Up to the Trees. The ancestors of humans, apes and monkeys may have taken to the trees because of their small body size. Scientists have long wondered why early primates inhabited forest canopies, given that climbing appears to consume more energy than walking. US researchers studied primates climbing and walking on treadmills. They said there was no difference in energy consumption for small primates, giving clues to how their ancestors entered the trees 65 million years ago. Dr Jandy Hanna of Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, said the data suggested that the earliest primates were able to exploit a new environment without added cost if they remained small. The earliest primates differentiated from other mammals partly due to their exploitation of a new arboreal niche, that of the terminal branches of trees, she told BBC News. Early primates, which would have been about the size of large rats, then underwent a number of evolutionary changes as they adapted to their new environment. These included nails, rather than claws, and grasping hands and feet. The benefit or payoff of invading this new environment, and the appearance of these anatomical changes, was an insect and fruit-rich environment, said Dr Hanna. Professor Robin Crompton of the Primate Evolution and Morphology Group at the University of Liverpool in the UK said it had been observed in the wild that small animals such as the mouse lemur and dwarf bush baby move in much the same manner on verticals as horizontals. For the first time, the US researchers show that for primates of up to 4 kilograms or so, at least, the energetic efficiency of vertical motion increases very little with size, while previous work has shown that the efficiency of walking increases sharply, he said. 
and more information can be obtained if you go to the bbc.co.uk link in my show notes and in there on the top right hand side is a link to the science website and there's more information available there. The following article comes from the damninteresting.com website and it's entitled Can You Hear Me Now? And if you're wondering where the Get Smart theme music came from, it just reminded me, looking at some of the photographs on this article, of the infamous cone of silence that they used to use in that TV show. So if you're old enough to remember the Get Smart series, think of the cone of silence. When the big bad wolf donned grandmotherly garb, so as to surprise Little Red Riding Hood, he assured her that the big ears were all the better to hear you with. Essentially, the big bad wolf was explaining the basic operating principle behind most of the world's acoustic location devices. Originally, acoustic location was used for ship detection in fog conditions, but from mid-World War I to the early years of World War II, the devices were often used for aircraft detection. They were all rendered obsolete by the introduction of radar, but for a time they served a useful purpose in national defence. If not effective, they were at least distinctive. At the Brussels Inventors' Fair of 1960, Frenchman Jean Ausker exhibited his wearable acoustic navigation device. It was to be used by small ships in case of radar failure. The distance between the horns increased the observer's ability to localise the direction of a sound. Unfortunately, in this case, the horns weren't far enough apart. With Auschka's device, you could hear an oncoming vessel about the time it was to collide with you. And if you go to the link in the show notes, you'll see the Frenchman there with his... Unusual device. Hmm, don't think I'd be seen dead in that one. <laughs> Operation of most large acoustic detectors usually required the use of three crewmen and four horns. One man's task was to operate and adjust the elevation of the device for maximum reading, another adjusted for the greatest direction bearing, and a third reported the settings to a central location. Using several results from multiple detectors, the target's location could be triangulated and the information was then passed on to anti-aircraft defences. The whole process was done in a surprisingly short period of time. No detector was better than the German Ringtrichterichtungsschere, or the RRH. I hope I got that right in German. The detector was used mainly in anti-aircraft searchlight batteries for the detection of British night bomber formations. The RRH could detect targets at a distance of 12 kilometres, and depending upon weather conditions and operator's skill, it could help detect the size of the aircraft formation. It had a directional accuracy of 2 degrees. The device had a crew of three with the dial reader in the middle. The rolled-up material over the operator's heads could be unfurled to provide cover in bad weather. And as with the uh, previous uh, invention, there is a picture in the show notes of this device. The Japanese war tuba is a name sometimes applied to Imperial Japanese military acoustic locators due to their visual resemblance to a musical tuba. The name derived from a misidentification, probably in jest, of a historical photo from the 1930s, featuring the Japanese Emperor Hirohito inspecting the acoustic locators with anti-aircraft guns in the background. It was used around major military targets and Tokyo. The British and Americans also had small acoustic detectors of limited effectiveness. However, the British did build a series of huge stationary concrete acoustic mirrors, some of which are still standing to this day, and there's a link in the show notes to that at this article. 
Another remarkable machine was a French acoustic locator based on a hexagonal layout. Each of the four assemblies carried 36 smaller hexagonally shaped horns. This layout was presumably used to increase the directional gain of the equipment. Because the detector was so large and out in the open, the type was abandoned after being repeatedly bombed by the enemy. Acoustic detectors are still used today by television crews to pick up the sounds of players and coaches on field during televised sporting events, where use of conventional microphones would be too intrusive. They are also used as novelty items, or whisper dishes, in science museums to allow patrons to whisper across long distances. And the article coming up shortly is one by Heather Whips, and it's from the LiveScience.com website, and it's entitled, How the Spice Trade Changed the World. Tonight, you might grind a bit on Caesar salad or use it to perk up a steak. But pepper was once so valuable that it could be used to pay the rent. Pepper, along with other spices such as cinnamon, cloves and nutmeg, was such a hot commodity five centuries ago that it drove nations to sail across vast oceans, searching for new routes to the spice-rich Orient. Spices didn't just make merchants rich across the globe. It established vast empires, revealed entire continents to Europeans, and tipped the balance of world power. If the modern age has a definitive beginning, it was sparked by the spice trade, some historians have argued. Spices were an important component of ancient commerce, well before the 15th century but were monopolised for centuries by Middle Eastern and North African middlemen who guarded the Asian provenance of their valuable sources closely and became fabulously wealthy for it. Back then the colourful grains were used for food flavouring, but also for such tasks as making perfume, embalming the dead, preserving meat and sprucing up salve recipes in traditional medicine. Europe dangled at the far end of the trading chain for spices, without access to eastern sources or the power to contest exorbitant prices. At one point in the 1300s, when tariffs were at their highest, a pound of nutmeg in Europe cost seven fattened oxen and was a more valuable commodity than gold. Even the aristocracy one of the biggest consumers of imported spices, began finding it hard to afford their shipments of peppercorn and clove. So by the 1400s, when navigational equipment had improved to the point that long-haul sailing became possible, the kings and queens of Europe set out to change the balance of world trade by funding spice-hunting missions of their own. First out of the blocks came Christopher Columbus, who, in searching for a quicker route to India, bumped into the Americas instead. Disappointed he hadn't reached India, Columbus's name for the native people he encountered in America, and their local version of a spicy condiment, Indians and peppers, stuck nonetheless. Also looking for spices, Vasco da Gama was the first to round Africa, and a crew led by Ferdinand Magellan fully circumnavigated the globe. The map of the colonial period was largely drawn in those frenzied years when all of Europe clamoured for a piece of the spice trade. Using dubious and often brutal tactics to establish a foothold in India and Southeast Asia. Spain and Portugal spent much of the 16th century fighting over cloves, while England and the Dutch duelled over nutmeg in India. 
Jammed with nutmeg trees, a tiny island called Run became the world's most valuable real estate for a time in the 1600s, when England gave it up to the Netherlands in a treaty to end hostilities between the two nations. In exchange for Run, the Netherlands swapped a couple of colonies across the pond, including what is now known as the island of Manhattan. By that time, burgeoning European outposts already formed a ring around the Indian Ocean, bringing enormous wealth to their home countries and fueling the colonisation of any territory deemed suitable for crops. Flags were planted and ship paths formed a web of sorts across the world's oceans like never before. For better and for worse, the world's first crack at globalisation had begun, all in the pursuit of a more flavourable dinner. Coming up in a moment is a story that's a little more cutting than normal. And from the Associated Press, a man uses a steak knife to do a self-tracheotomy. Omaha, Nebraska. An Omaha man struggling to breathe used a steak knife to perform an at-home tracheotomy. Steve Wilder said he thought he was going to die when he awoke one night last week and couldn't breathe. Wilder said he didn't call 911 because he didn't think help would arrive in time. So the 55-year-old says he got a steak knife from the kitchen and made a small hole in his throat, allowing air to gush in. A tracheotomy involves an incision in the trachea or windpipe. They are performed by paramedics and in hospitals for acute situations and chronic conditions. If not done properly, however, they can cause bleeding and damage nerves and blood vessels. Wilder suffered from throat cancer and related breathing problems several years ago. About that time he had an episode where he couldn't breathe because his air passages swelled shut. He said that's what happened this time around. Doctors don't expect Wilder to suffer any adverse effects from the tracheotomy once it's healed. Oh boy, I don't think I could do that one. Hope he knew what he was doing. Obviously he did. And now from the dailymail.co.uk website, an article by Julian Gavigan. It's a x-ray of the python who swallowed a pussy. And you really need to go to the show notes on this one and visit the link to this article because it's got the x-ray and a picture of the snake. Ooh, quite a good x-ray though, seeing the little pussy inside, all stretched out. Hmm, don't think my cat would appreciate that. This amazing x-ray picture shows the skeleton of a kitten inside a python's stomach after being devoured in one gulp by the predator. Eight-week-old tabby kitten Cole was seized by the slithering assassin while in the garden of her owner's home in Australia's tropical northern territory. The snake was found with a bulging belly by a 14-year-old Tara McLaren after she ventured out to feed her pets at 7am yesterday. Despite Cole having a skull three times the size of the five-foot-long python, the reptile was able to dislocate its jaw to swallow the kitten after wrapping itself around and strangling its prey. Three other kittens from the same litter and five adult cats were unable to stop the savage attack in the Darwin suburb of Tiwi. The cat owner, Asher McLaren, told the Australian newspaper, It wasn't a very nice feeling to think that this happened in our backyard. My daughter went out to feed the cats, and they normally all come running at the sound of the dish. But Cole was missing. She then looked around and saw the snake. She called out to me saying, there was a big snake and she thought it had eaten Cole. When I went out, I couldn't believe it. It had a bulging belly, and when we couldn't find Cole anywhere, it was obvious he'd been eaten. It was very sad as he was my favourite. He was just gorgeous. Miss McLaren said they quickly put the other cats in the house and the snake catcher Gordon Canning was called out to collect the python. He said it was unusual for a python to target a cat, but the kitten did not have a chance against the reptile. 
He said pythons usually strike at their prey and squeeze it to death before devouring it whole. The cat would have been suffocated within minutes, he explained. The snake did well. Usually it's the other way around with snakes falling victims to cats. Mr Canning said the snake would be kept at the Ark Animal Hospital in Yarrawonga until it digested its feed. At the moment it cannot move very quickly so it could easily be targeted by predators, Mr Canning said. Once it has finished digesting the cat, which will probably take about a week, we will release it back into the wild. Mr Canning urged people to be cautious in their backyards as snakes were on the move, as the breeding season nears. He has been called out to catch more than a hundred snakes since becoming Darwin's first 24-hour snake catcher three weeks ago. And from popularmechanics.com, an article by Joe Papalado. As the shuttle lifts off, NASA will man a destruct switch, just in case. If the looming Discovery mission or any other between now and the spacecraft's retirement loses control, NASA is prepared to ditch it into the Atlantic or blow it up. Each time the Space Shuttle rises from its launch pad at Cape Canaveral in Florida, an Air Force officer waits anxiously for the first two minutes to pass safely. If the spacecraft were to veer off course and endanger a populated area, this range safety officer would bear the terrible responsibility of flipping a pair of switches under a stenciled panel reading, Flight Termination. The first switch arms explosives on the shuttle's two solid rocket boosters. Flipping the second switch would detonate them, destroying the shuttle and its crew. If something happens when it's just off the pad, there's only a couple of seconds to react, says Brian O'Connor, a former shuttle commander and NASA's chief of safety and mission assurance. But the danger continues as the craft streaks upward. If a spacecraft's flight controls or engines malfunction, toxic fuel and fast-moving debris could threaten people below. After about two minutes, the spent solid rocket boosters drop away, taking the charges with them. After that, problems severe enough to threaten people on the ground would leave the crew with two options. Enter orbit and fly around the Earth for a landing at California's Air Force Base at Edwards, or steer into the ocean. Ditching at sea would be extremely dangerous. Astronauts would need to exit the ship at 20,000 feet without the benefits of ejection seats. After Challenger, we installed parachutes, survival suits and individual rafts, as well as an extendable pole used to clear the escapees from the wing when they exit the hatch while in flight, O'Connor says. NASA's next space vehicles will include a rocket-powered escape pod for launch emergencies. And if you go to the show notes and go to the link to this article, you'll see a picture of the panel that the operator has to use in case of an emergency. Colleen Kearney Rich of the George Mason University has written an article for Live Science and it's entitled Using Abstract Math to Treat Cancer. Dr Roman Poliak is a fortunate man. In mathematics, his area of research, few get to see their discoveries translated into actual applications during their lifetime. Yet more than two decades after he first developed his theory and published it, 
Poliak watched a conference presentation that showed his mathematics had translated into a device to help treat cancer. In the presentation they showed a photo of a boy, said Poliak, smiling as he recalled the image of a young patient helped by this new technology. I was in heaven. I never dreamed, 25 years ago, that rather abstract mathematics could be used for cancer treatment. Poliak, who holds a joint appointment in operations research and mathematical sciences at George Mason University, works in the field of mathematical optimization. Optimization, as the name implies, involves making something as effective as possible. People have been working on optimization since the ancient Greeks learned that a string encloses the most area when it is formed into the shape of a circle, he said. Nearly 25 years ago, Poliak developed a theory called nonlinear rescaling, or NR, for solving constrained optimization problems. The methods are essential for solving complicated real-world technological problems with thousands of variables and tens of thousands of constraints. Poliak's NR concept has been adapted and modified by others, notably German researchers Rembert Rimsden and Marcus Albert, who recently used it to improve the efficiency of radiation treatment for cancerous tumours. The treatment uses optimization to determine angle, intensity and duration for radiation beams to most effectively destroy cancerous tumours without damaging nearby healthy tissue. Software fundamentally based on NR has since been built into radiotherapy systems used in some hospitals. You can do beautiful theory, but the real question is, is it robust? asked Poliak. His method enables calculations with up to 10 digits of accuracy, critical not just for treating cancer, but for many uses beyond medicine. In structural optimization, the method solves extremely large design problems with up to 5,000 variables and 200,000 constraints. Image processing, medical diagnostics and finding the optimal distribution of power across a grid have been just a few of the applications. But success hasn't come easily or quickly for Poliak and the circumstances under which he accomplished much of his most creative thinking were less than desirable. In 1980 he was fired from his job in his native Kiev in the Ukraine because of his desire to emigrate from what was then part of the Soviet Union. As a refusnik, he was forced to support his family of eight using a complimation of odd jobs involving mathematics, including tutoring and mentoring people working on their dissertations. For almost a decade he was isolated not only from his colleagues abroad, but also to a large extent from his colleagues within the Soviet Union. It was impossible for him to publish research in the Soviet Union, or even to submit papers for publication overseas. Despite this, he continued his work and obtained, as it became evident years later, very important results. During the dark times, Poliak says it was his family, a few friends and mathematics that sustained him. If I couldn't do my mathematics, I would be spiritually dead, he said, and he means it. Fortunately, before losing his position, he had published several papers. Translated into English, the work was becoming known in the West. This drew attention to his situation, and with the help of his colleagues abroad, Poliak smuggled his seminal modified barrier function, or MBF, paper out of the country. When Poliak finally immigrated to the United States in the late 1980s, it wasn't until Gorbachev took office that he could finally leave, the colleagues in the West were instrumental in helping him secure a position in the Mathematical Sciences Department at the IBM T.J. Watson Research Centre. It was at IBM that his ideas were tested in the early 1990s, and his paper, Modified Barrier Functions, Theory and Methods, was published in 1992 in Mathematical Programming, the leading journal in optimization. Poliak has continued to refine his theories and the NR approach has become the foundation for the exterior point methods in constrained optimization. 
In 2006, he and his former graduate student, Igor Griva, also from Kiev and now an assistant professor at Mason, published in Mathematical Programming a paper that outlined their new NR-based exterior point method for achieving faster and more accurate solutions to large-scale constrained optimization problems. Last year, the pair earned a US patent for their mathematical tools. Griever first met Polyak while visiting graduate schools in the US. Instead of trying to sell him on the university, Polyak told Griever about projects that he could tackle if he came to Mason. Griever was hooked, and the two are still working together. He sees connections in places where others don't, says Griever, who called Polyak inspiring. He is one of the most talented teachers I've ever had, and a brilliant mathematician. Currently, Poliak is working on a book in which he plans to summarise NR results for the last quarter of a century. It makes me very happy that my mathematical findings have been used for such important applications. With mathematics, when it develops, you have a tool that can be applied in any field. And if you go to uh, my show notes and find the link to this article, there is a link in that article to Poliak's own website, which has the full story behind his research and a deeper history of the mathematics involved. And much of the music for today's podcast comes from the Podsafe Music Network and they can be found at music.podshow.com. Don't forget, if you want to provide some feedback for the show, my email address is paulrex at paulrex.com and you can also do it through iTunes or any other website where you found the link to this show. And if you're visiting the show notes and you have a DIG login account, you might like to click on the DIG voting number at the top of the page on the website and vote for this podcast. It would be much appreciated. And for those who are interested in how the circulation for the show is going at the moment, we're averaging around about 300 to 330 each week, so things are looking up. And for those who might be interested in how I put the show together, it's done in GarageBand on my MacBook Pro. I use a Logitech headset with the built-in mic, of course, and uh, in a couple of weeks I hope to be upgrading to a new microphone so the sound may improve slightly, or a bit more, I hope. It's going to be a Rode Podcaster microphone, and uh, it looks like it's quite a good setup, so uh, hopefully that'll turn up, because they're just out of stock at the moment, worse luck. But being an Australian-made microphone, hopefully they won't take too long to get it. So if you notice a slight sound improvement in the next podcast or two, hopefully it's the uh, new microphone. And back to the stories. The inventor of the wetsuit dies, and it's from LiveScience.com. Undersea divers would still be shivering and facing a high risk for hypothermia if it weren't for Hugh Bradner, inventor of the first wetsuit. Bradner, a renowned physicist and professor emeritus at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, died on May 5, 2008 in San Diego after a prolonged illness. He was 92. Bradner had a lifelong passion for the ocean. He enjoyed diving and sailing and was one of the first Americans to make a deep-water scuba dive. In 1951, while working at the University of California in Berkeley, he decided to spend some weekend time improving diving equipment for Navy frogmen, which began his pioneering research on the wetsuit. Bradner focused on the design of a wetsuit for military underwater swimmers and developed a foam wetsuit using a unicellular material known as neoprene. He was an adventurous man who enjoyed travelling, said Walter Monk, Professor Emeritus at Scripps, which is part of the University of California, San Diego. He built a successful career by combining his geophysical work with his South Pacific adventures. Bradner collaborated with scientific divers at Scripps, who were experimenting with the new scuba regulator, which supplies divers with breathing gas on demand and at the proper pressure, invented by Jacques Cousteau and Emile Gagnon. 
Scripps divers first tested Bradner's wetsuit designs at their scuba training classes in the pool at La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club. Brad's neoprene wetsuit was a tremendous contribution to scientific diving, said James Stewart, Professor Emeritus at Scripps. He was a great guy and a lot of fun to work with. Bradner was well regarded for his collaborative approach to science, evident in his reluctance to claim himself as the sole inventor of the wetsuit. He continued to consult for the military throughout his scientific career. His other research endeavours led to novel diving equipment, including underwater contact lenses, a single hose regulator and a decompression meter. Bradner even developed a loop system for quickly extracting US Navy SEALs from bodies of water via inflatable boats. During his distinguished career as a nuclear physicist, Bradner worked at the US Naval Ordnance Laboratory in Washington, D.C., and the Lawrence Radiation Laboratory at UC Berkeley. He also worked on the Manhattan Project as one of the founding scientists of the Los Alamos National Laboratory. It was at Los Alamos that he met Marjorie Hall, his wife of 65 years. In 1961, Bradner joined Scripps as a research geophysicist in the Institute of Geophysics and Planetary Physics. He published extensively in the fields of physics, seismology, geophysics and diving. Bradner was an avid outdoorsman, hiking the Sierra Nevada mountains, swimming in the La Jolla rough water swim and travelling all over the world to enjoy the oceans. His greatest joy was said to be to watch as he guided students, family and friends to the discovery of something new. He also was a painter, a photographer and a jeweller. Bradner graduated from Caltech with a PhD in physics, where he coached the swimming and water polo teams. He received his undergraduate degree from the Miami University in Ohio and received the Miami University Medal in 1960 and an honorary doctorate in 1961. He is survived by a daughter, Bari Bardner Cornett of Berkeley, California, three grandchildren and a great-granddaughter. His wife died on April 10. And coming up is the story from Meredith F. Small on Why Doesn't Evolution Discourage Suicide? Suicide is ubiquitous. Around the world, in just about every culture, some people decide to take their own lives. It happens far more often than most people realise, making news only in prominent cases, as with Deborah Jean Palfrey, known as the DC Madam, who apparently chose to kill herself last week, rather than face up to 55 years in prison. More interesting, just about everyone can imagine the urge to end it all, although most of us never get remotely close to acting on that thought. And yet suicide, even thoughts of suicide, make no sense, at least from an evolutionary point of view. Humans, like all animals, are designed to pass along genes to the next generation. But ending your own life means, in stark evolutionary terms, cutting off or harming your future reproductive success. When young people kill themselves, their genes are eliminated from the gene pool. When adults kill themselves, they can no longer care for dependent children. When elderly people kill themselves too, they abdicate the role of caring parent for the next generations. Why would such a negative behaviour be part of human nature? The answer is complicated by the fact that any number of emotions and experiences can push a person towards suicide. It might be loss, or loss of hope, or a change in life that makes life not worth living, or it might be a lifetime of hardship topped by some final misery that makes suicide look more appealing than carrying on. The answer is also complicated by the fact that the human mind is notoriously fickle. What is overwhelming to one person might be seen as a temporary glitch to another, and our attitude about life changes over a lifetime. For example, we might be easily despondent in our teens, resilient at 20, and then unable to cope at 40. Negative emotions also have deep evolutionary roots. 
primatologist Franz de Waal of Emory University, has shown that chimpanzees and other primates lead complex emotional lives, ones full of happiness as well as negativity. Chimps not only love and care for others, they also hate and become depressed. Although chimps can't talk about their feelings, researchers say these emotions are easily seen, spotted by body language and behaviour that mirrors the same emotions in people. Researchers have even watched as chimps die from what looks like a broken heart. Obviously sadness is part of life for animals with big brains. The capacity to feel presumably helps us solve problems and survive, and is essential for group living. And perhaps inconsolable depression is simply emotional baggage that tags along with the good stuff. Or maybe unhappiness and a tendency towards suicide is the product of the uncontrolled nature of our quicksilver minds. We think a lot, and our wandering minds are just as likely to think sad as happy. It's also possible that deep sadness has in some way been selected for. Attempted suicide is much more frequent than successful suicide. Commonly called a cry for help, these acts do indeed change the life of a survivor as well as the people around them. In the best case scenario, the attempt is seen as a red flag that all is not well and loved ones step in and make things right. In an unexpected twist, the most negative of human acts can become a lifesaver and a way to keep genes where they belong, in the gene pool. And today's final story comes from the nationalgeographic.com forward slash news website and it's written by Michael Casey in Bangkok, Thailand. Why was the cyclone in Myanmar, or Burma, so deadly? It was Asia's answer to Hurricane Katrina, though with a reported 100,000 times killed, it was more deadly. Packing winds upwards of 120 miles an hour, Cyclone Nargis became one of Asia's deadliest storms by hitting land at one of the lowest points in Myanmar and setting off a storm surge that reached 25 miles inland. When we store the storm track, I said, uh-oh, this is not going to be good, said Mark Lander, a meteorology professor at the University of Guam. Cyclone is the name given to a hurricane when it occurs in the North Indian Ocean or as in the case with Cyclone Nargis, the Bay of Bengal. Forecasters began tracking the cyclone on April 28 as it first headed towards India. As projected, the storm took a sharp turn eastward, but it didn't follow the typical cyclone track which leads to Bangladesh or Myanmar's mountainous northwest. Instead, the cyclone swept into the low-lying Irrawaddy River Delta in central Myanmar. The result was the worst disaster ever in the impoverished country. It was the first time such an intense storm is known to have hit the Delta, said Jeff Masters, co-founder and director of meteorology at the San Francisco-based website Weather Underground. He called it one of those once-in-every-five-hundred-years kinds of things. The easterly component of the path is unusual, Masters said. It tracked right over the most vulnerable part of the country, where most of the people live. When the storm made landfall early Saturday at the mouth of the Irrawaddy River, the cyclone's battering winds pushed a wall of water as high as 12 feet, some 25 miles inland, laying waste to villages and killing tens of thousands. Most of the dead were in the delta, where farm families sleeping in shacks, barely above sea level, were swept to their deaths. Almost 95% of the houses and other buildings in seven townships were destroyed, Myanmar's government says. UN officials estimate one and a half million people were left in severe straits. When you look at the satellite picture of before and after the storm, 
the effects look eerily similar to hurricanes Katrina and Rita in how it inundated low-lying areas, said Ken Reeves, Director of Forecasting for AccuWeather.com. The Irrawaddy Delta is huge, and the interaction of water and land lying right at sea level allowed the tidal surge to deliver maximum penetration of seawater over land, Reeves said. Storms like this do most of their killing through floods, with saltwater being even more dangerous than freshwater. The Delta had lost most of its mangrove forests along the coast to shrimp farms and rice paddies over the last decade. That removed what scientists say is one of nature's best defences against violent storms. If you look at the path of the cyclone that hit Myanmar, it hit exactly where it was going to do the most damage. And it's doing the most damage because much of the protective vegetation was cleared, said Jeff McNeely, chief scientist for the International Union for Conservation of Nature. It's an expensive lesson, but it has been one taught repeatedly, he said. You just wonder why governments don't get on this. Some environmentalists suggest global warming may have played a role. Last year, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change concluded that warming oceans could contribute to increasingly severe cyclones with stronger winds and heavier rains. While we can never pinpoint one disaster as the result of climate change, there is enough scientific evidence that climate change will lead to intensification of tropical cyclones, said Sunita Narayan, director of the India-based environmental group Centre for Science and Environment. Nargis is a sign of things to come, she said. The victims of these cyclones are climate change victims and their plight should remind the rich world that it is doing too little to contain its greenhouse gas emissions. Weather experts, however, are divided over whether global warming is a factor in catastrophic storms. At a January conference of the American Meteorological Society, some experts postulated that warmer ocean temperatures may actually reduce the strength of cyclones and hurricanes. Masters at Weather Underground said Wednesday that, in the case of Nargis, the meteorological data in the Indian Ocean region is too short and too poor in quality to make judgments about whether tropical cyclones have been affected by global warming. Despite assertions by Myanmar's military government that it had warned people about the storm, critics contend that the junta didn't do enough to alert the delta and failed to organise any evacuations, perhaps resulting in unnecessary deaths. Villagers were totally unaware, said 38-year-old Kin Kin Maiwi, interviewed in the hard-hit delta town of Labata. We knew the cyclone was coming, but only because the wind was very strong. No local authorities ever came to us with information about how serious the storm was. The India Meteorological Department, one of the six regional warning centres set up by the World Meteorological Organisation, or the WMO, began sending regular storm advisories on April 27. The information appeared in Myanmar's state-run newspapers and on radio and on television 48 hours ahead of the storm. But the international advisories said nothing about a storm surge. And Myanmar, unlike its neighbours Bangladesh and India, has no radar network to help predict the location and height of surges, the WMO said. There also wasn't any coordinated effort on the part of the junta to move people out of low-lying areas, even though information was available about the expected time and location of landfall. How it is possible that there was such a great death toll in the 21st century when we have imagery from satellites in real time and there are specialised meteorology centres in all the regions, said Olavo Rasquino of the UN Typhoon Committee Secretariat. Bangladesh has a storm protection system that includes warning sirens, evacuation routes and sturdy towers to shelter people, measures that were credited with limiting the death toll from last year's cyclone Sidda to 3,100. 
Atik A. Rahman, Executive Director of the Bangladesh Centre for Advanced Studies and a disaster specialist, said Myanmar's death toll would have been lower if it had had such a system. Taking some action to move people from affected areas would have dramatically helped reduce the numbers of casualties. Absolutely, Rahman said. But junta officials and some weather experts said evacuating a large area with millions of residents would have been nearly impossible given the poor roads, the distance to some villages and the likely refusal of some families to leave. Even if they were warned then, they can't go anywhere. Or they are afraid to go anywhere because they are afraid of losing their property, said Lander, the University of Guam professor. It is debatable how much of a mass exodus you could have had. Well, that concludes episode 31 of Origins. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember the show notes are at www.origins.info and if you do get a chance to vote for us on the DIG website or provide some feedback, it would be greatly appreciated. Bye for now.